Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. My God will supply all of your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. That's Philippians 4.19. Interestingly, I don't know if we went around the room and surveyed today, and maybe those joining us on live stream can speak up, but I wonder how many of us say, yeah, that's true for me. God has uh, supplied all of, my, all, all of my needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. And it's always interesting to me because that's a, it's a great verse that we Christians, we like to throw around. We like that uh, most of us have it somewhat memorized. And uh, Paul's writing that passage from prison, which sort of dampens the spirit a little. <laughs> I mean, you know, when you write it, at the resort, it makes more sense than when you're writing it over at the prison. And he's writing the whole letter as a response to the fact that, that the people of Philippi, the people at the church at Philippi, have sent him a gift so that he might continue to subsist. <laughs> I mean, he's literally perishing in prison for lack, and, and they send him a gift, and, and now he's out of, he writes a letter of pure joy at the fact that God has provided in ways in his subsistence, and, and that's when he says, and, and I'm convinced that my God will supply all of your needs. And so when we start to think about how our needs are getting met, that's, uh, that centers around a number of things. It centers around who we are, how we're wired, how we're made. And uh, I don't know about you, but I'm into those uh, personality uh, breakdowns, you know, whether it's uh, Strengths Finder or Myers Briggs, I like all of them. You know, what color are you? I mean, there's all kinds of those. And my wife began write, reading a book a few weeks ago um, called the, the Road Back to You, and it really looks at the Enneagram. How many of you have messed with the Enneagram and you know what I'm talking about? Good. So seven of us know what we're talking about. So you're a number on the Enneagram, and it's kind of fascinating stuff, and uh, it's one of the older kind of breakdowns, and so she, she started reading the book, and so she started sending me quotes, and I'd already started writing for this series, and, and so then I would read the quote, and I'm like, well, uh, that's really good, I probably should talk about that. <laughs> In fact, if she sent me three or four, and I'm like, well, I've got to use them all now, so I guess I've got to buy the book, because <laughs> I can't act like I've read it, which I still haven't, but I've started. <laughs> So what's going on is the author of this book, The Road Back to You, his name is Ian Morgan Crone, and he's going through a very dark time in his journey and his spiritual life. So he's writing to tell the story about what happens to him. And he gets connected to a spiritual mentor. Now, in a moment, I'm going to read to you a prayer that the spiritual mentor prays over him at their first, and it's going to be very new agey. So is everybody okay with that? Okay, so just so you know, it's not the dawning of the age of Aquarius or anything. In fact, if you'll be patient, he actually gets to, you know, some God stuff as he kind of moves through the prayer. And so, just so you know, he's, a, he's an Orthodox Catholic priest who's retired who's praying this prayer. So, you know, it's pr- pretty good, pretty mainstream Orthodoxy stuff, even though he's kind of, woo, mystical. <laughs> but we like mystical, don't we? I like mystical. 
So he goes to meet with this mentor, and this is what the mentor says to him. As long as we stay in the dark about how we see the world and the wounds and beliefs that have shaped who we are, we are prisoners of our history. We'll continue going through life on autopilot, doing things that hurt and confuse ourselves and everyone around us. Eventually, we become so accustomed to making the same mistakes over and over in our lives that they lull us to sleep. We need to wake up. I don't know about you, but that's pretty powerful stuff, isn't it? I mean, I don't remember the last time I sat down with a spiritual mentor and they talked to me like that. I'd be like, whoa, I may not come back. (laughs) But isn't it true? As long as we don't understand, as long as we stay in the dark about who we really are, it is very difficult for us to go forward. I think that's why I like those personality things, because they have a... Uh, an almost spooky way of getting to who you are. I, I fill out those questions that seem random to me, and then I read the analysis, and I'm like, whoa, I'm not sure what kind of witchcraft is going on here, but this thing is spitting out information about me. I had no idea, and it is so completely accurate. A few paragraphs later, he quotes one of my favorite writers, uh, Thomas Merton. I, I don't know how many of you like Thomas Merton. Uh, I, I, at any time... I need to feel completely lost intellectually and philosophically. I go read Thomas Merton. The guy is just exceptionally brilliant. But he is great to quote. (laughs) Listen to this. Sooner or later, we must distinguish between what we are not and what we are. We must accept the fact that we are not what we would like to be. We must cast off our false exterior self like the cheap and showy garment that it is. We must find our real self in all its elemental poverty, but also in its great and very simple dignity, created to be the child of God and capable of loving with something of God's own sincerity and his unselfishness. I mean, that's just beautifully written. And we we must admit that we are not what we would like to be, that underneath us there's another person that lives. Maybe we don't even fully know who that other person is, but I'm pretty sure no one else knows who that person is. And that's the hope, that somehow we could find our real self and and acknowledge that we are not what we ought to be or what we want to be, but we are of great and immense worth, that God has invested something in us, and that's what we want to get in touch with in our elemental poverty. We want to lose all that other facade and get down into what actually makes us worthwhile. And so then he comes to this moment where they've finished this conversation they've been having, and this mentor then prays this prayer over him. And I'd like for you to actually just close your eyes and bow your head, and if you're watching on live stream, go ahead and do that. And just listen to these words as I pray this prayer over you. May you recognize in your life the presence, power, and light of your soul. May you realize that you are never alone that your soul in its brightness and belonging connects you intimately with the rhythm of the universe. May you have respect for your individuality and difference. May you realize that the shape of your soul is unique and that you have a special destiny here. Behind the facade of your life, there is something beautiful and eternal happening. May you learn to see yourself with the same delight and pride and expectation with which God sees you in every single 
moment. Amen. I think when we begin this journey to figure out who we are, it matters because when we think about God supplying all of our needs, and we're talking this morning about the, the blind spot of provision. So when we're trying to think about God providing for all of our needs, our life providing for all of our needs, or being people of contentment, or being people who are well-adjusted, or fully integrated human beings, whatever language you would like to use, happy, maybe that's part of it, then it seems to me it becomes really important to think about how this whole culture works. And I don't know about you, but, but it seems to me that within our culture, we really practice the myth of scarcity. There's just not enough to go around. And, and it doesn't really matter, you know, the, the, the context of the conversation. It seems like that, that if you talk long enough, in our culture right now, there is a myth of scarcity. And so we, we have a big conversation going on socially right now about wealth sharing and how important that is. Underneath that idea is the idea that there's a limited amount of wealth, and so we have to distribute it properly, and there's an idea of scarcity. We talk about that in terms of compassion, in terms of care, in terms of freedom, in terms of rights. Everything is, is, is built around this idea of scarcity. And so when we live in a place of scarcity, and you know, we can talk about it at that cultural level, but let's bring it down just a little. When we live in relationship with an attitude of scarcity, something happens to us. And, and if we're honest, in our relationships, a, a lot of times what we are sensing is there's not enough to go around. There's not enough love. There's not enough care. There's not enough attention. There's not enough compassion. There's just not enough. There's not enough. And when there's not enough love and there's not enough dignity and there's not enough compassion and there's not enough attention, when we live in a space where that becomes kind of how we see the world and how we see, I, I don't know, I mean, let's be honest, it's church. If we look at our parents and we say, I don't know that my parents are giving me everything I need. I think they, they need to give me some more stuff. They need to understand me better. They need to love me more. Why didn't they say this instead of that? Why didn't they ask me this instead of that? And as parents, I don't know, why do my children say they love me more? Why don't they, why don't they care some about me? It's like they, you know, they just need me. They just use me. They don't really love me. And, and what about my spouse? And it feels like, you know, that's just it's all going out and there's nothing coming back. And I just, you know, there's just I just don't feel secure. I don't feel these are all sort of what happens to us because we also practice scarcity. There's not enough. There's not enough coming to us. We're not receiving enough. We're not feeling fulfilled. We're not feeling happy. We're not feeling connected. And if we live in this place of scarcity long enough, we start then to practice a win-lose mentality. We start to practice the idea that if someone else is winning, I'm losing. And we do that in our culture, and we do that in our politics, and we do that in our relationships, win-lose. I, I, I want there to be enough to go around, but when I don't believe there's enough to go around, then if somebody else is getting something, there is scarcity, there's a lack Oh, they're getting attention. Oh, they're getting love. Oh, they got a good thing. Why do all the good things always happen to other people? Why do all those things, how oh, come it doesn't ever happen to me? And we live in this place. And the result of this process then is that it leads us into a space where we begin to lack sensitivity to the people around us. Because we are measuring the things, because we're feeling loss, we're not feeling fulfilled. Then we begin to look out, and when we see that win-lose thing starting to take place, then, then we're no longer really thinking about what other people are doing or what they need or what's going on in their lives. We're starting to think about what we need. 
So it's kind of an interesting juxtaposition. Hugh Prather says, ultimately, my character is defined by the quality of my sensitivity to other people. I exist in equilibrium. I am here to the degree that I am there. That's a, that's a mouthful, isn't it? Everybody okay? I mean, did I come out of the gate a little fast and hard? And you kind of, you know, there used to be that, uh, that uh, uh, ad, and there was a guy listening to the stereo, and he was sitting in the chair and the speakers, and his hair was blown straight back. That's what all y'all look like right now. It's like... That I am created in a way that I am only fully here as I'm fully there. I'm not independent. I'm not okay all by myself. I'm not okay just looking to my own needs. I am only here as I am there. I live in equilibrium with the people around me. It's really important. And so in this myth of scarcity in which we practice in our culture, we are also taught, uh, while there's not enough to go around, to be sensitive to everyone. These two ideas do not play well together. It's hard to live in an atmosphere, in a culture of scarcity, and be sensitive to others. Therefore, in our depth and wisdom as a culture, now what do we do to people who act out in ways that we consider to be destructive? We send them to sensitivity training. Isn't that an interesting thing to have to do? You are destructive culturally to our office, to our whatever, we're going to send you to sensitivity training. We're going to send you to a class to learn how to be sensitive to the people around you. Neil Scoville writes these words, sensitivity training is a fine idea, but it isn't taken seriously by those who need it most. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of like saying the only people who are getting sent to sensitivity training are really not capable of learning to be sensitive. I mean, sensitivity training doesn't it have something to do with way more than learning the elements of sensitivity? Doesn't it have to do with changing who you believe you yourself to be? Doesn't it have something to do with embracing truth? Doesn't it have something to do with believing there's an abundance of something? Seems like, to me, maybe that's part of the blind spot. We learned a long time ago some of those basic truths. Here's one of them, the golden rule. How many of you knew that the golden rule was in the Bible? I don't know if you guys are terrified that I'm going to call you out. I'm not. It is in the Bible. Now, what's interesting is the context in which it is spoken. Here it is, Matthew 7, part of the Sermon on the Mount, verse 7. Ask, listen to what's going on here. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be open. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, would give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, would give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. So suddenly, what we have going on is we have Jesus talking about and teaching about the availability of resource for anyone who wants it. Ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open. Because I'm telling you, your father knows how to give you good gifts. 
And who of you, if your child asked for bread, would give him a stone? Or if they asked for fish, would give him a snake? If you know how to give good gifts, how much more does your father? So go ahead, because God is supplying, making provision for your need. Go ahead and do to others as you would have them do to you. And then he adds, on this thing sums up the law and the prophets, which, which we have another summation. Love the Lord your God. And love your neighbor as yourself. They're all fishing around here in the same pool. <laughs> and I don't know about you, but when I hear this, I think, well, it's not exactly how my spiritual life works. not exactly how my practical life works. I don't just ask and God just gives it to me. I mean, if some of you have those connections, come see me after the service because, you know. So how does that work? I mean, it, it is not a statement in which we believe that God gives us everything we want. It is a statement of faith, believing that God provides for us in a way that's best. It's a statement of faith. I can't, I can't look at situations that are difficult and sometimes see how God is providing everything I'm asking or needing. But by faith, I understand that God is committed to take care of my needs. And I'm willing to say there's a lot of things in life I don't understand. But I still believe God provides. And I still believe there's an abundance and that God cares about who I am. And then I start to think, well, so I'm to love the Lord my God with all my heart. That's where I think God needs to give me stuff. Amen? I mean, and I'm to love my neighbor as myself. It seems to me that the provision piece is built into these two things. That, that there's a vertical piece that has to do with how I love God and in relationship with him. And there's a horizontal piece that has to do with how I'm in relationship with others. And then I start to wonder, well, there seems to be a, 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 a kind of scarcity in our culture. A lack of provision. And maybe some of it is related to that vertical relationship. But isn't a lot of it related to this horizontal relationship? I mean, isn't a lot of the provision that we need in our lives something that's built on human relationship? On in the integrity we share with one another? The love and compassion we have for each other? Isn't so much of the scarcity in our culture and the lack of a sense of security? And Isn't that somehow related to the very fact that as we turn ourselves inward and we stop looking at others, as we stop doing unto others, as we would have them do unto us that then the scarcity gets created then the lack of provision really happens I guess what I'm saying is maybe God really does provide for our needs but maybe we do not make use of them in appropriate ways to remain healthy at this horizontal relationship level and so it's hard to blame God when if I'm very honest, I would have to say, I'm not sure I love others like myself. And I'm not sure that I do unto others as I would have them do unto me. I'm pretty sure I like to do unto others either as they do unto me <laughs> on my good days. Bad days. Did my mic go out? It's too bad because that was hilariously funny. <laughs> I'm afraid that I, on my good days, do unto others as they do unto me. 
and on my bad days, I try to do unto others before they do it unto me. And I'm wondering if that may be part of the disconnection. There's uh, this story that's unfolding in the life of Joseph and the patriarchs. And so in the 37th chapter now, as we've moved through the story, we have Joseph who is remaining back with his dad, Jacob. And Jacob comes to Joseph and he says, I want you to go visit your brothers. uh, And uh, I want you to uh, go down and check on them. They're taking care of the sheep. They're down uh, in an area called Shechem. And I want you to go there. And so he's in Hebron. Hebron's on the west bank. Uh, uh, Shechem is north. Um, north and west of Jerusalem. And so, uh, so Joseph uh, leaves his father's presence and he goes to check on his brothers and he goes to Shechem and when he gets there, he can't find his brothers and someone sees him wandering around and he says, who are you looking for? I'm looking for my brothers. And they say, oh, he had gone on down to Dothan. And so Dothan is now south of Jerusalem, sort of south of Bethlehem. And so he makes the journey then from Shechem down uh, to Dothan, and then he finds his brothers. And as he approaches uh, where his brothers are grazing the sheep, they see him while he's a long way off. And we're told uh, in the 37th chapter, they say, here comes that dreamer. Let's kill him. I'm not sure how family systems break down to this point. <laughs> but, but I just want you to observe. There is a myth of scarcity in this family. Within the context of this family, there's not enough love to go around. And this myth of scarcity, not enough love, not enough care, not enough compassion, has broken down into win-lose. And if Joseph is winning, the brothers are losing. And when you live in a myth of scarcity, and when you have a, this win-lose mentality, then you lose all sensitivity to what's going on around you. Here comes that dreamer. Let's kill him and see what becomes of his dreams. I mean, how insensitive do you have to be for this to be the reality of your life, of your emotions, of your feelings? Now, now Jacob has not been sensitive to the life of his family. Let's begin there. There's been a myth of scarcity in Jacob's life. I got a favorite child because he was born from my true love late in my life. And I got something out of this that I wasn't getting from my other children See how the myth of scarcity works? So I'd been losing. My other 11 sons didn't do it for me. 10. There's one after Joseph. My other 10 sons didn't fulfill me. But this son, this is the one I've been waiting for. This myth of scarcity and the win-lose of it and now this lack of sensitivity. And Joseph's not the most sensitive fellow in the world, is he? I mean, as the object of this story, as the as the protagonist in this story, I mean, he goes around spouting off, flaunting the love of his father. Hey, you see my inheritance robe? <laughs> yes, I'm going back to the house while you stay out and take care of the sheep. And I had a dream, by the way, <laughs> that you all bowed down to me. <laughs> Don't know why that didn't go well. <laughs> Reuben, the oldest, says, let's not harm him. Let's put him in a cistern. If you've been to the Holy Land, you've seen dozens of these cisterns. They they burrow down into the solid rock. They just go and dig a giant hole in the ground. And the reason is because there's not much rain. And so they dig these giant holes in the ground to capture every drop of rainwater. Whole communities could live 
off of one inch of rain for three years. You would think maybe some folks in Southern California might look into it. <laughs> it's one of those cisterns, and it's empty, and they put him down in it, and Reuben thinks that's a good plan. I'll go back later and rescue him. And then they go eat. You catching the, the, the lack of sensitivity? They go eat their lunch with their brother down in the cistern. And then they see a caravan coming towards them. And this is what they say. Hey, there's no reason that we should kill our brother. There's no reason that his blood should be on our hands. Let's sell him into slavery. After all, he is our brother. I mean, when your sensitivity comes to this point where you can say, hey, I know, let's sell them into slavery. That's a good compromise. And they sell them into slavery for, for 20 shekels of silver. And he goes off, and Reuben returns, and he finds the cistern empty, and he cries out, oh, where am I to go now? What am I to do now? And so they take the coat that they've taken from him, and they kill a goat, and they spill the blood on the coat. Now listen to the insensitivity. They go back to their father, and they say, do you recognize this? And the father is immediately crushed. Yes, it's the robe of Joseph, my son. Surely a wild animal has torn him to pieces and devoured him, and he enters into mourning. And we're told that all the children come and try to comfort Jacob. But he refuses to stop mourning the loss of his child, Joseph. And the little, the little narrative ends with us knowing this, that Joseph arrives in Egypt and he's sold to become a slave in the house of Potiphar. And it sort of brings this vignette to a close. What kind of process has to take place inside of the hearts of human beings where there's such a sense of scarcity that you get in competition with the people who are in your own family, where you covet the attention they're receiving, and they covet the attention you're receiving, and everybody lives at a loss. And there's not enough love, and there's not enough care, and there's not enough compassion to go around. And no longer are we loving God with all of our hearts and our neighbor as self. No longer are we doing unto others as we would have them do unto us. What we begin to do is we begin to focus on our own needs and our own lives and our own hurts and our own reality until everything is about what people are doing for us or, more importantly, what they're not doing for us and why our needs aren't getting met and why we are unhappy in our life and in our journey. But we do not live this way. We live in equilibrium with every other person, and we are only here as we are there. And so it doesn't work well. As I think about that in the greater context of the story of the Bible, I, I find four things that I think really matter to us this morning as we move to conclude. Don't you love those words? As we move quickly to an end. Number one. God is the prime mover in this biblical story of love and relationship and grace. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. The very first premise of scripture is God loves you and he lavishes love on you and he cares about you. 
and he forgives you, and he picks you up, and, and he cares about you on your very worst day. I don't know about you, but I, I have a hard time accepting love that I don't believe I deserve. Uh, that's a fancy way that sounds way better than it is. Here's the truth of it. I have a hard time feeling good and lovable when I'm not doing very well in my life and journey. When I'm not making the best decisions, when I'm not acting in the most loving ways, when I'm not performing well. I don't know. I, I, I don't think my parents raised me in some broken way. I had a happy childhood, I think. But I do think somewhere I got the idea that the better you perform, the more lovable you are. Anybody else have that idea? Five of you? Because if all of you are that well adjusted, then we should trade places. And I translated that, you know, sort of rule of law into my spiritual journey. That God loves me better when I perform well. And that he answers my prayer. And I've heard it taught. I've heard people stand in front of crowds and say, and when you're obeying God and you're right with God, he will answer your prayers. But when you are not, he cannot hear you. Well, that's sort of hopeless. Better pray like on maybe Sunday afternoon right after church because usually that hour there, that's, I don't do anything wrong. Well, I guess if you get into that whole mind thing, then that's a... He's the source. He's the prime mover. He's the first cause. What is God's attitude towards you? He loves you. You are his child. He created you. What does he feel when, he, when you fail and fall apart? Compassion. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all. He's in the business of picking us up and putting us back together and picking us up and putting us back together. He's infinitely patient. He's infinitely loving. He's infinitely kind. So much so that the scripture says, let me pour out that abundance on you. Ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open. Your father knows how to give you good gifts. This is the underlying premise of everything else that happens. He loves you. 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 And he likes you. And he sees you. Remember the prayer, may you sense and see yourself with the kind of love and expectation with which the Father sees you always. He's the prime mover and the first cause. Number two, we're invited to spend some time thinking strategically about the needs of others. That's a lot of words, but let me, you know, we're invited to spend time thinking strategically about the needs of others. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. If we were to do a survey this morning, and I were to say to you, about what do you think strategically? See how I did that? That was grammatically correct. <laughs> about what do you think strategically I'm guessing that most of us here think about grocery shopping strategically I'm guessing every person here has some sort of strategic plan about getting food on the table for some of us it's Grubhub but but it's still it's still a strategic plan most of us have a day of the week we go to the grocery store most families have a day of the week that is primarily the grocery shopping though most of us have to go every day because we can never remember 
Amen? So that's a strategic plan. We're going to go and we have a strategic plan about what we're going to buy. We're going to do most of our shopping in the produce section. I mean, I know what you're supposed to do. You know, we want our cart to be mostly full when we leave the produce section. I find if you start at the other end with the bread aisle, then you just fill in whatever's left over at the end over there. Well, we got some room for grapes. It's been a good week. I got some fruit in the cart. Had to take out the little Debbies, but there's some fruit in the cart. And we have a strategic plan. I would guess we spend far more time thinking about the strategic plan of buying and preparing the food than the strategic needs of the people around the table that will eat the food. I'm guessing most of us spend more strategic time thinking about our haircut than we do thinking about the specific strategic needs of the people with whom we are sharing life. Oh. Just my haircut? Oh. I'm guessing most of us spend more strategic time on, how, on the cleanliness of our car and when we get car washes than strategically thinking about the needs of the people with whom we are sharing. Who are they? What do they need? What makes them tick? We are to do unto others as we would have done, and we have a blind spot of provision. There's not enough. There's not enough of my energy. There's not enough of my time. There's not enough of my compassion. Who's taking care of me? And when we get into that mindset, it doesn't take long before our focus is just us. God is the first cause and the prime mover. He pours his love into us so that we might then pour it into others. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. On these two things hang all the law and all the prophets. And we are instructed to think strategically, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Instead, consider others better than yourself. Putting their needs above your own. Well, I don't know why God doesn't provide. Well, maybe it's up to us to take the love he pours into us and to pour it into others. And maybe the great scarcity is because we're not doing this very well. Number three, you'll be happy to know the last two are super short. We're called to turn this understanding into a real life Great game plan. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Let your light shine in such a way that they see your good deeds and give praise to your Father in heaven. We can sit in this room and we can say, I value what he said today. I value it. And never turn it into a usable virtue. We're not asking for intellectual assent to the idea. We're asking to put the virtue into practice. You're a city on a hill. You can't hide the love. You can't hide the compassion. People know. Dogs know if you like them or not. Cats, not so much. <laughs> I mean, even whatever's going on, that little bitty brain and that dog, that dog knows if you like them or not, her, it. So do your children. So is your spouse. So is your neighbor. 
So does the person at the grocery store. Let your light shine in such a way that they see your good deeds. This is not a fictitious thing that goes on inside of us. This is not a value thing that's going on intellectually, emotionally. This is a virtue that is visible to the people. It gives light to the people in the room. Is that who we are? Or has our blind spot of provision caused us to become so introverted in our process that what I really care about is me, what's happening to me, how I feel? Who's taking care of me or who, more importantly, is not taking care of me? Let your light shine in such a way. Number four, make it happen. Therefore, whoever hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise person who builds their house on solid rock. I mean, we can talk all day, but until we get from this place where we're getting it out of our heads and we're getting it into the real world and we're actually putting into practice the instructions that God has given us, we're not going to see much change. And it seems to me that when we talk about the blind spots of relationships, this is a giant one. I don't know about you, but I mean, if, if I just said, as we close out the service, I want everybody to come forward who feels the scarcity in your life. It would be most of us. Most of us feel like I'm not getting everything that I had hoped or wished or dreamed. And so we have a decision of where we're going to fit in the process. Are we going to become people who are finding a connection to God in such a way, you know, being connected to the vine if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you'll bear much fruit. But if you don't abide in me, you can do nothing. And, and some of us, we're not abiding. We haven't figured this piece out because we're dry and empty and there's no fruit because we're just sad and we're lonely and we're disconnected. And I don't know how it all works. I, I wish it worked like I was taught. Come down to the altar and pray and God will zap you and you'll feel completely happy and fulfilled. Amen? Amen. I love that theology. It's simple, it's precise, and it doesn't really work. But... I don't know how to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Get rightly connected. I, I know I got to keep coming back. I got to keep asking God. I got to change how I believe. I got to change how I see him. I got to start believing what the word really says about him. He loves me. He loves me. He loves me. He loves me. He lavishes his love on me. I ask and it will be given. Seek and you'll find it. I got to figure out what this all means because I believe it to be true. And then once I receive, I have to strategically think about how to share it. And then I have to actually let the light shine in such a way that people know they're being loved. I mean, don't you love that conversation and that argument? But I do love you. It's about time you start appreciating how I love you. Oh, thank you. I feel so warm now. I mean, really, if you have to argue, it's probably not working. And then I just need to do it. I need to actually have practices in my life that change. God, would you help us? Would you, in your grace, see those feelings of scarcity? They matter to you. They matter that so many feel broken or lonely or sad or unloved or shame. It's not how you created us. You invited us to admit what we are not and to embrace in our elemental poverty the truth of who we really are, a child of God, a creation 
of God, unique. And that we ought to appreciate how we're made and the differences and the truth of our story and the power of grace and that every single thing that's happened to us, you've used to shape us into people who are becoming something. And so we know that the scarcity, the feelings of scarcity matter to you. And we want to start right there. All of me. Take all of me. All of my sin and all of my failure. My heart, my soul, my treasure. And help us not to just be content to live in this place in which we're trying to receive from you, but to equally live in this place where we are trying to love others as we love ourselves. We're trying to do unto others as we would have them do unto us. Would you teach us and allow us in these closing moments to simply open our hearts and to pray from the depth of who we are. And maybe we can't even voice it. Maybe we just sing along. Maybe we just are quiet and we say, search me, O God, and do the work in me. Make me right. Make me whole. Whatever it is, we come before you to respond to your word, and we give you honor, and we give you praise in Jesus' name. And everybody said together, let's stand together and respond to the word. Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.